One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Trump, because he needs the feeling of, I solved that great problem, needs the great problem to be seen by everybody. He's like psychologically completely unsuited to preventing tragedy. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times and your host. And here we are, another week. So, a few months back, I did a big magazine interview with uh, Michael Lewis. He is, the, of course, the author of Moneyball, The Big Short, The Blind Side, you know, these movies that you know and love. He happens to live just a few miles from me over in Berkeley, just above Cal, the university there. And anyhow, we went on a hike and talked about The Fifth Risk, which was his latest book. And it's all about the Trump administration. And what he did was basically take a deep dive into the government. Now, that sounds boring. It's not, because he frames the government as a manager of risk, this thing that keeps us all alive and safe from just a laundry list of horrors like nuclear meltdown or toxic food or, of course, a pandemic. So what he did is he journeyed inside the government, met a bunch of really interesting people to try to understand what was happening in the early days as after Trump took over where he seemed really hell-bent on slashing budgets, kicking out experts, and filling very important positions with cronies and loyalists who were almost comically unqualified for the jobs they were given. It was a warning, basically, the book was, that if the proverbial hit the fan, we'd be all in very big trouble. And here we are, in the midst of a -a once-in-a-century pandemic. So I wanted to catch up with Lewis to talk about what he found when he was writing that book and why he's not surprised by the shockingly poor response that the Trump administration has offered and the way forward. And it's not just Trump. For those listening overseas, you may recognize that a lot of what he found in America inside the government, and that is now playing out for all of us to see, a lot of that is happening in other places, in other countries. So I do think there's some some parallels to be drawn there. Uh, Lewis is a great talker, a great communicator, so I think um, you'll find it entertaining and illuminating. So here he is, Michael Lewis, on the pandemic, why the government matters, and what we might glean from this disaster. Enjoy. First of all, thanks for taking the time. Sure. I can't believe we have anything to talk about. 
it's funny when you and I were talking about the book, it was just like this theoretical proposition. The government manages this portfolio of risks and it's the one tool for managing the risks and blah, blah, blah. And I would tell you all the things that, that might go wrong and who knew what it was going to be. But oh my God, it's like you couldn't script it. When we actually met up, I think it's probably a month later that coronavirus started, or maybe it was right around then. I mean, it keeps changing and going further back as they do more research. But did you see they it, just they found that two people died in the Bay Area on February the sixth from it? They just they just worked that yeah, out. Yeah. So when did when did you and I go on our walk? It was around Thanksgiving. Okay. Time. So it hadn't happened yet, but the way that the Trump administration effectively disabled every possible defense in advance. If you had to put someone in the White House who would do the most damage to the country, like Putin could install someone in the White House, what would they do? They'd do just what he did. It's the most amazing thing. And I can't figure out what I have been asking myself. I guess I can understand why you get rid of the $200 million a year program to predict what virus might leap in right. the human population that thing that had been going on since the Obama administration, it seems like a really good idea to me. It's not that much money, but I could see how someone might look at that and say, you're never going to be able to predict it $200 million a year. What I can't figure out, and I really can't figure out, and if you have an answer to this, I would love to hear it. Why you remove the pandemic response team from the National Security Council after it's been put there for a very good reason to coordinate a response. So for example, you catch the CDC on it when it, gives you a test that doesn't quite work and you catch that early on. I don't understand, yeah. you know, it is a sign of ineptitude. It's not a label you can put on the ineptitude. When, when you and I were talking and you asked me like, all right, why would you put a radio talk show host in charge of a $3 billion a year agricultural science budget? Well, it enables you to do some things with the budget that might help your friends. The money, money questions. Or, or oh, this is the guy who ran the weather channel who then was put in charge of the weather service, right? All yes. that stuff. You can see there's a narrow, selfish money motive for doing that kind of thing. So before we dive in, because there's so this is so rich, the book is called The Fifth Risk. Can you just explain briefly kind of what the idea is, what you did to write the book? Because I think that really sets the stage for then what we're, what we're seeing sure. is happening now. So the basic idea was to think of the federal government not however you think of it, but think of it as a manager of a portfolio of risks, many of them kind of existential risks, the risk that the electric grid's going to be sabotaged or the risk that some nuclear bomb is going to go off or the risk that there's going to be some pandemic virus. There are a whole bunch of things that the federal government manages that no one pays any attention to. And if they do it well, no one's ever going to pay any attention to because the bad thing doesn't happen. The idea of the fifth risk was I'd gone into the Department of Energy just as an example, and ask them, what risks are you worried about? And the guy who was the chief risk officer of the Department of Energy, just in the Department of Energy, had a list of 138 of them. And many of them were just terrifying. And so I made him give me the five most salient, the things he was most worried, top of mind. And he gave me four quickly. And then he got to the fifth and he couldn't think of what it would be. And I thought, that's the fifth risk. It's the sort of the thing that's not top of mind. It's the thing you're not thinking about and preparing for. That The government, invisibly almost, is, is preparing for, but we're not thinking about it. There's not immediate political pressure and attention brought on that risk. And I thought, that's the thing I'm scared of. And I'm scared of it because 
Trump has walked into the White House, fired his entire 500-something person transition team, which was the mechanism for getting an understanding of what the federal government does. So that was the first step, right? You went in and you just kind of unpicking that simple, kind of unbelievable act of saying, since however many decades it's been, there's been a transition team. Because obviously you're coming in to run the biggest company on the planet. Yes, basically. a two million person operation. And you're actually, you're subsidized by Congress and the Obama administration is required by law as the outgoing administration to prepare to hand over the government to you. And the Obama administration, like a thousand people had spent months on these briefings. And the briefings are not ideological things. The briefings are how we did this or how this works. And there were briefings like how when the Ebola virus broke out, how we configured the federal government to defend ourselves against it. And you might agree or disagree with how they did it, but it's very useful to see how someone else did it. And it helps you explain to you how this enterprise works. And Trump, especially, I thought, given that he had absolutely no experience in government, Mm. if anybody was going to take an interest in like, how this thing works, it would be someone who was completely clueless. If it were you and me, we'd be terrified. We get it. We got to run this thing. And we don't know anything about it. Trump's attitude was, as he said to Chris Christie, it, when Chris Christie was trying to explain to him the importance of this transition operation, he said, Chris, if we win, you and I could take an hour off from the victory party and learn everything we need to know about the federal government. So right. that was his attitude. So you start understanding the what that looked like, because I think that's the other thing that kind of comes out in the book, which is also playing out here, is just the government is a two million person organization built to basically keep the lights on and the water running and people safe and things kind of kind of society running. People, um, people safe is what I was focused on. And pe- people safe is what some large chunk of those two million people are doing. So people safe was the big deal to me. And it was the way to emphasize the risk of having someone not care about the enterprise. Now, I had no idea what actually was going to happen that he had to keep us safe from, but neither did he. So the question is like, what, what happens when you, when you just neglect the one tool for keeping us safe in certain situations? What happens to us? So what did you find moving past the transition of just like, you know, okay, I don't really care what anybody did before. I'm, I know everything, et cetera. What did you find when you started looking at these big government bureaucracies that was concerning or unbelievable or incredible or just, what did you find? A couple of things, some unhappy, some, ha- some happy. But the unhappy story is that it felt like I was walking into an enterprise that had suffered decades of neglect in its organizational structure in the investment in its infrastructure, but like punch cards in the computers at the IRS, in its ability to attract young, ambitious, energetic people. I mean, the fact that this stuck in my head that I just, it still is mind boggling, is that there are five times more people in information technology in the government, five mm-hmm. times more people over the age of 60 than there are under the age of 30. Now, I don't know anybody over the age of 60 wow. who knows how my computer works. So it, the idea that that has happened in information technology in the government just shows you that it's an ossifying, aging enterprise that we have not really invested in. And it's also been just sort of like constantly kicked and beaten for decades. And so everybody in it 
has a sense that you don't want your name in the paper. If your name is in the paper, it's a right. bad it's a bad thing. There's no recognition culture. No, let's shoot for the stars. No, no, let's do something great that everybody loves. It's sort of like let's keep our heads down. Now that's that was the bad part. And I didn't blame the people in the government for this. It's that that's our fault. It's our fault for the neglect of the enterprise. But the people who were there and who were doing jobs, who I spent time with, I was shocked by the willingness to suffer uh, and the willingness to commit. A lot of people I was talking to were, you know, fancy scientists, risk managers, really interesting, accomplished, ed highly educated people who could have made a lot more money in the private sector, who mm. saw just how critical the mission was. And so they got all of their psychic income from just the sense of how important they were to the world without anybody else knowing. And, and those people sustain the narrative. I mean, that's why you want to, you want to stick around. You find out there's this calamity that's happened, this catastrophe in the making, but, but you've got these people who are just so appealing as characters. And so that was the other half of it. It was those people. When, coronavirus started happening, for lack of a better word, or when we saw it kind of taking root, obviously, first in China, then it, what was happening in Italy, and then it was like, oh, God, it's coming here. Was there a moment where you're, was it was there a moment early on or where you woke up one day and be like, oh, God, we are totally screwed? Was there a moment? Every time Donald Trump got up at a press conference, uh, there, that was a moment because everything he said was wrong. I already knew that they had paid no attention to pandemic preparedness. I didn't know that they had ditched the, the pandemic response team on the National Security Council, and I didn't know they had cut, eliminated that program to predict the movement of viruses. But I knew they'd done things like that, and I knew they, weren't, they just weren't equipped. He wasn't equipped to hear bad news and respond to it intelligently. I didn't ho hold out a whole lot of hope for the federal government to be able to respond as we might expect it to do. I guess the thing is that when I saw what the crisis was going to be, when I saw it was this kind of thing, it's one that's really very particularly suited to being dealt with in a centralized fashion. I mean, it really isn't even a national problem, right? It's a global problem. Ideally, yeah. there's a global organized response. If we swat it back, but it explodes in Mexico, it's a fantasy to think you're going to keep it back out of here. After a few weeks of watching the Trump administration, I got very interested in, in how the society was going to compensate for the total dysfunction and ineptitude of him, of the White House, in organizing a response. And you're seeing it, right? You're seeing governors saying, well, we're going to have to behave like we're our own country now. And so I've been watching that very closely and talking to people who really should be part of the centralized federal response but who are functioning at local levels because they can't get listened to and acted upon. Now, if you ask me, rewinding the tape, what's the thing that like set off alarm bells in my head? It might've been when all of a sudden Jared Kushner is head of some pandemic response unit, whatever the hell it mm. is. Our lives are at risk. There are lots of people who know about how to sort of respond to a virus. There are lots of people who know how to organize the federal government. We know he's not one of them. His sole qualification for the job was he's the, in, he's the son-in-law of the president. And when I saw that the way he, that Trump was going to respond to it was just to surround himself with loyalists, then I thought we're, the federal government is not going to solve the problem. We're doomed if we rely on them. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To your point around the great ossification that's happened that we haven't really been seeing, I'm curious how much of what is happening now or not happening now can you put down to the president. He's one man. This is two million people. He is a kind of a carnival kind of character. And I'm trying to understand how much we can actually put at his door, as opposed to government often just doesn't work very well. He's made sure that government doesn't work very well. And government has worked very well in the past. It's the various threats of pandemic recently. And here's what you can blame Trump for. One, not putting qualified people into the jobs of running the places that respond to this thing. Two, not ever bothering to understand the problem in the first place and dismantling some defenses that we actually had up front. Now, you never know for sure how that would have worked, but couldn't have been worse than it is. Three, minimizing, you know, you talk to anybody who has worked in pandemic response And they'll say the big problem is leadership at the top explaining to the people that you've got to distance before you know you have to distance. You have to do it before it's obvious. It's essentially a preventative thing. And it's unsatisfying because if it works, you think, ah, we didn't need to do that. Look, so few people died. And you don't really internalize that so few people died because you did this. Trump, because he needs the feeling of, I solve that great problem, needs the great problem to be seen by everybody. He's like psychologically completely unsuited to preventing tragedy. You know, in his response, he really made it impossible for the federal government to do the one thing it really could have done and it would have had a big effect. And that was say to the people, look, it doesn't seem serious, but let me show you some videos from China. This is how it can be. And if we just take some action now, tens of thousands of your lives will be saved. So you can blame him for failing to provide that leadership and hasn't provided it to that day. On top of that, I would add that even if you act late as he did, there are things that you need to do that even if the federal government had done it only kind of okay, I think that had done it pretty well, actually, things like centralizing the acquisition and distribution of masks and ventilators and tests rather than having governors willy-nilly compete with each other for the stuff. Centralizing the information, the data about, mm. about the virus. And what he did was, in a very cowardly way, 
he put the onus on local officials to make the unpopular calls. I think you can fault him a lot. And I think that, you know, there's some alternative. The other argument that, oh, look, the government never would have done anything anyway, I think is baloney. I think that actually the government was set up before he took over it to do a pretty good job in response to the thing. So in other words, what is, what is playing out now is a kind of a buildup of lots of these decisions, starting with the transition and all the way down, kind of attack on expertise that it seems to be endemic there. Yes. And you're still seeing it. I mean, you're seeing it in the president making recommendations for drugs you can take when there's no real great evidence that that drug works. There is expertise that's important here. There's knowledge that's important here that he's made it difficult for us all to access because he's introduced all this other stuff that isn't knowledge and isn't expertise and trumpeted that as solutions or things we should pay attention to. And it's all a distraction from how you do this, how you respond to this thing well. And there's a famous, um, and I think you referred to it in the book, the famous list of resumes that kind of surfaced early on in his tenure. That was not my great reporting. That was the Politico's great reporting. They got yeah. a hold of all the resumes and ended up becoming jobs, job holders at the Department of Agriculture. And it was like, I was a pool boy one summer. None of it, <laughs> it was, none of it was, I, I actually know something about what it is I'm taking over. I mean, do you want Donald Trump performing heart surgery on you? No, you want a, you want a heart surgeon. But Donald Trump thinks that he can perform heart surgery on you creates a lot of bad bad results bad results right <laughs> obviously you spoke to a lot of people for the book have you heard from any of them as this has unfolded of like i don't know just commiserating or you don't know the half of it or anything like that you know the answer is yes and the tone of the the tone is we all knew this was going to happen we didn't know exactly what it was going to be but we knew whatever it was going to be that he wasn't going to be prepared for it and he would have disabled, in, to some degree, the federal government's ability to respond to it. It has not been a surprise. At this point, my sense is that most intelligent, responsible, knowledgeable people have basically given up on the White House as a tool for dealing with the problem, and and are starting to take it on themselves. And the, that, that's not that's a it's a second best solution, but but. It is. I mean, it's all remind. It really reminds me of a, a dysfunctional family where you've got a psycho dad on at the top, who's kind of alcoholic, angry psycho dad, who's you know prone to rage and fits, and and everybody's sort of tiptoeing around him, uh, and the family's just trying to hold itself together, and everybody's compensating in various ways. Everyone I talk to feels like they're in that family. Well, it's really interesting. You talk about the kind of this states taking them on upon themselves in particular, it does feel like this is um, our governor, you know, Gavin Newsom, that feels like this is his dress rehearsal for his presidential run. He's kind of been a, a leader, whether you like him or not, but the things he has done, the early action he's taken, teaming up with other states to make big orders for this stuff. I mean, he's he seems to be kind of leading the charge. It just feels like this is something he will hearken back to, you know, in 2024 when he's running for president. You know, that's probably right. It's more and it's more than just a public relations exercise, right? I mm. mean, I mean, he's actually he's actually having to function like a president in ways he just shouldn't have to. All these governors are. They're all getting experience. Did you see that the day before yesterday, I think it was Trump said that he'd spoken to hundreds of governors 
Now, mm. now <laughs> that kind of captures the flavor of his relationship with the governors, I think. He thinks of them as those things out there and however many of them there are. But I, I think they know, one, they're basically on their own. Two, there are still some things they could use from the federal government. But the only way you get them is if you tiptoe around Psycho Dad uh, and you don't actually blast him as you should. In some ways, I, I think that the, the public view of Trump's handling this thing is much rosier than it actually is. In retrospect, mm. it's gonna, in retrospect someone's going to be able to point to 47,000 people who died who wouldn't have died if Donald Trump killed with it the way he behaved. And everybody's sort of tiptoeing around that a little bit, including Gavin Newsom. I mean, every now and then he slaps him around, but mostly he's trying yeah. to kind of keep it polite. But you think that will be the the view it, with retrospect with time as we kind of kind of dissect this in a more historical kind of I may have, how I this may have told you this, but when the idea of first came to me for framing the government as a portfolio of risks and asking what are the consequences of Donald Trump running that portfolio of risks, managing it. The way it, I first thought of dealing with the way I was thinking was to get someone to take out a giant clock in Times Square that was going to be called the Trump death clock. And it would just scroll the number of people who died because Donald Trump was in charge of this operation. And then when I came to my senses, I realized for the most part, you can't make that calculation. I mean, it's just too complicated. But yeah. in this case, Someone will make that calculation. You'll be able to say if it had been handled this way instead of this way, so many fewer people would have likely died. So he's really dramatizing the sort of the pit in my stomach I felt when I was watching him in his early days. And I guess lastly on the on the kind of his leadership style, if you if, if you want to call it that, is also just you know he's sending out these tweets: liberate Virginia, liberate Minnesota. It does feel. Like he's almost, he's emboldening people to go against what his public health officials are saying. He's saying, yeah, protest, go out there, forget social distancing, go out there, you know, you know, some of these governors have gone too far, et cetera. I mean, it's extraordinary. He's incredibly cowardly. As a, what he's trying to do is put himself in a position, I think, where he can say I was right afterwards, but w whatever happens. I mean, when he does that, his... Supporters who are on the streets gathering in crowds, I don't think there are actually that many of them. You know, we see pictures, but it seems to be the same picture over and over. So it doesn't seem to be like a mass movement. But those people, what they aren't, what they're paying insufficient attention to, it, is, it isn't their health they're jeopardizing. You do this and you put yourself in the position of maybe giving this thing to 50 people. It is an act of unbelievable selfishness to break with this strategy because it's the only known strategy for, for attacking the virus. The broader thing that's so disturbing is just how quickly even a pandemic can become a party polarizing event. And even a pandemic can create one narrative on Fox News and another narrative on MSNBC. It's sort of like the test case, right? If, if that can be done with this, anything will be done. The only, the kind of hopeful signs to me are it's not really working. I mean, it's not like Donald Trump's really popular, yeah. you know, people, he seems to be losing support. Maybe actually in the end, this is a good thing. Is that your hope is that this will be the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, when it comes to 2020 and his attempt for reelection? My hope is bigger than that, that it actually wakes people up 
to what the government is for, what this tool should be used for, and we refurbish our toolkit that we actually invest in this thing. And I don't mean like giant government or socialism or whatever. What I mean is sharpen this tool so that it, it really works when we need it. It's unthinkable right now. But look, if you rewind the tape, it's not that shocking that we are living through a pandemic. There have been false starts several times. And it's just an accident of how these things mutate that it took till now for it to happen. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to envision it happening again with some other virus. And imagine what the situation would be in if the mortality rate for this thing was not 1% or whatever it is, but 20%, which is what the mortality rate of the first coronavirus was. It just didn't spread as fast or as well. I mean, we would be looking at chaos. So we need to be able to defend ourselves against these things, this kind of thing. My hope is that everybody sees that and that the society responds by making sure government works and that it gets the proper attention. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Michael for taking the time over Zoom, as everybody else is doing these days. No such thing as an in-person interview anymore, at least for now. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I think we'll be doing one more pod this week. Thank you again for continuing to listen and continuing to subscribe to the Sunday Times. Please do that. As I said, these are tough times for newspapers and the biggest help we can get is having more people pay for it. So do take a moment, subscribe. We're working very hard to kind of bring the important conversations, the important facts to you week in, week out. So please take a moment, do that for us. And yeah, I'll be writing about a whole bunch of stuff. I can't even predict what it's going to be because it's changing every day. That will be in the the paper this weekend, online at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks very much. Uh, Stay safe and have a good week.